Welcome to my Black Book Journal Power by Act Justice of Mercy. I am host Danny Brister. Look, you all wanted to go ahead and drop this episode for you. Um, it is a message that I shared earlier this year. I hope that you enjoy it. We'll be back to dropping new podcasts. I had a lot going on recently, guys. So thank you for listening and sticking with the podcast. But I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Um, I think you'll you'll enjoy this message. I think since it's around the Advent Christmas holiday season, um, it's it's a very timely message. So hope you guys enjoy it. Looking forward to dropping some new episodes soon. All right, y'all be easy. John 1 14 says this, and this is out the Christian Standard Bible. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So, this particular passage of Scripture speaks of the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the Westminster Confession says this about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It says, is the doctrine of Jesus, the eternal word of God, the word without ceasing to be what he is, God, the son, taking into union with himself, what he before the act did not possess, a human nature. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is a holy act where God or Jesus Christ continues to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. That's a lot of words. Right. That's a whole lot. But what this doctrine speaks of is that the one who created all things. Right. So. So let me let, let me say this before I go there. John, in the first verse of his book of the Gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things that were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created, right? John gets a little wordy as well, but I think y'all get the picture. Now, John is testifying of an eternal truth. And that truth is that God is the one who originated and created all things, right? But not only is he testifying of the fact that God is the creator of all things, he's also testifying of the fact that creation speaks to this. All right. So I'm going to turn really quickly to Genesis chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that word there, God, is the word Elohim, right? Which is the word that is an impersonal word for God, but it means the creator. Right. It is the word that shows off how vast and how big and how awesome God truly is, because he is the one that spoke and caused everything to exist. Then it says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And so what Genesis does is it goes on this beautiful rhythmic dance of showing us how God created all things, right? He spoke and all things came into being. And so in Genesis, we see the triune God at work. We see the Father, we see the Spirit hovering, and we see the Word of God that is spoken beginning to bring things to pass. You with me? All right, so go back to John, right? So what John is saying is that this Word 
that was in the beginning with God is Jesus. And this Jesus took on flesh, stepped down into our reality, and lived among us. Yeah. Yeah. Now, pa pause there. Because that's a big deal. Yeah. Right? Like, I grew up reading and hearing, you know, Sunday school lessons and Bible study lessons about how God created the heavens and the earth and a hearing about Jesus. But have you ever just stopped and pondered that the creator of all things, who spoke all things into existence and who and through whom all things received this life, took on flesh and subjected himself to his creation? That's wild. So John is testifying that I, I need you to know who this Jesus is. Yeah. I need you to know that there's something different. There's something special about him. Yeah. And so John says that we, we had an opportunity to behold this Jesus' glory. He revealed himself to us. He came, he hung out, he dwelt among us. The word was made flesh. The worker of all creation stepped down into his creation and lived among us. John Perkins, who serves as the founder of the Christian Community Development Association um, and a personal hero of mine, says this about the incarnation. He says, the incarnation, God's coming to earth in human form to live and breathe and walk and work and minister among us, illustrates God's desire to be present with those he has created. Doesn't that speak of the awesome love of God that he would want to restore fellowship with us so much that he would step down into his creation to be with us? You all, you all know that sin breaks fellowship. Yeah. Right? And God created everything, the universe and everything that dwells in it. He created man and woman and he breathed in them the breath of life. And then that very man and that very woman turned against him, sinned against him, rebelled against him, and he loved us and them so much that even in the midst of that injustice, he said, I'm going to cause a way for me to be with you. Yeah. Because I, through this woman, will send forth a seed that will crush the head of a serpent. And his, he, 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 he always wanted to be with his creation. So, in Jesus' coming, what did he do? Now he came, but it's not just enough to acknowledge that he came. We have to look at the life that he lived and what that very life accomplished because it tells us something about the nature of his work. So stick with me because I want to go somewhere with you all. According to Hebrews chapter 2 verses 9 through 18 and Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 7, it tells us what Jesus was sent into the world to do. So I want you to write those verses down and then on your own time, go study those verses out and see if I'm telling you the truth, right? Hebrews chapter two, verses nine through 18 and Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. I came up with 12 things just derived from these passages God came to do. I won't go in depth, but I'll talk a little bit about them. So Jesus came and took on flesh, dwelt among us to do what? To taste death for everyone. We sinned against God. And so the punishment of our sin was death. 
And so to put us back in right relationship with himself and with the father, Jesus died the death that we should have died in our place so that we might know eternal life. The second thing he did was he came to redeem us. He came to purchase us back because we were sold into sin and there had to be a price paid for our redemption. So Jesus redeemed us through his blood and his life. The third thing he did was came to proclaim the name of God to us, it says. The Bible says that there was only one name under heaven and earth given to man, which may they may be saved. And that is the name of Jesus. But Jesus came to proclaim the way himself to us, that there was only one way to fellowship and relationship with the Father. The fourth thing he came to do was lead many sons and daughters to glory. That we might be sons and daughters adopted to our true father. So, so let's, let's dive in really quickly into this one. So Jesus came to restore us back in proper relationship with our father. Mm-hmm. And he came to do that for every person. Every person. He came to bring redemption for anyone who would call on his name. Now, as I thought about this, I thought about how we have many origin stories, right? You can go to different cultures and different societies, and there's a different origin story for how things came into be, right? And we know as we look at our origin story that we believe that this is the way that things came into existence, right? But the beautiful thing about God is that no matter how you, what you believe, right, he can step in and bring truth, because his desire is for you to know that no matter where your culture and society is, he can step in and show you that there is one common originator, one common creator, and he has come to be with you and lead you back into right relationship with the Father. The fifth thing is to teach us how to worship and approach the Father. Jesus came to teach us the very nature of who God really is, and he came to teach us how to approach him and to worship him. Jesus said once that that God didn't desire for us to worship him on mountains or in big temples or in big tabernacles or big buildings, but to worship him in spirit and in truth. he, He came to teach us how to approach the Father. What else he came to do is he taught us how to learn obedience through the things that were suffered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hebrews says that Jesus Christ, the word became flesh, the son of God, learned obedience through what he suffered. Mm-hmm. That's right. The perfect son of God, who's existed from everlasting to everlasting, the alpha and omega, learned obedience through what he suffered. Mm-hmm. Think about that. That even in the midst of the beginning of creation, God created this man and this woman and he gave them a commandment and told them what they should and should not do. He gave them immense freedom, but also limited their freedom to what they shouldn't do. And in that, he promised to be with them and fellowship with them. But you all know that perfection is not perfection unless it's tested. Right. Like so, so you can't drive over a bridge, even if it says it can hold six tons, if it's not tested. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it. Right. And so what good is a savior that has not been tested, that cannot understand what we've gone through, what we're going through, what we've been through? 
And so Jesus, though the perfect son of God, was still tested, tempted, and tried in every way, yet without sin. Why? Well, for my next reason. So that he could serve as a perfect high priest and always empathize with us in our times of need. Not only did he come to do that, but he also came to destroy the works of the wicked one. Now, that's important, y'all, because sometimes we talk about saying like he got too much power. Right. And it's important. The scripture speaks about the work that Jesus did as coming to destroy the works and the power of the wicked one, meaning two things. Whatever power Satan had, Jesus already taken from him. And so now all he can do is deceive and lie. So we have to see Jesus rightly in light of his coming and his work. He also came to free us, us who were held in slavery and sin and fear to death all of our lives. Y'all, death is a fearful thing outside of Christ. Think about this. Living always with the knowing that this is it. That after this, there's nothing else. That's fearful. But Jesus comes and brings hope. The hope of eternal life. That this is not all there is. That though I live by 70, 80, 90 years, 100 years, however long God gives me on this earth, he gives us, this is but a taste of what we'll experience with him. Y'all, that's good news. He comes to make atonement for our sins. And he also comes that we may be filled with his spirit. Amen. He, he said, I won't leave you as orphans. I won't leave you on this journey of life alone, but I'll come to you. I'll be with you. I'll meet you. I'll interact with you. I'll engage with you. I'll teach you my ways. I'll instruct you in the way that you should go. I'll walk alongside you. I'll fill you with my presence so that you know you'll never have to walk through and be in life alone. I came to be with you. Y'all, that's good news. That is the evidence of Jesus coming and taking on flesh and living among him and living among us. And we've seen that. We've observed that. We've served as witnesses to that. So just as John testifies and he witnesses of that this is what Jesus came to do, we can testify and witness that that is true because we've experienced in our own lives and we've seen him do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. John 20, verse 21, Jesus says this. He appears to his disciples and he says, Peace to you. This is after his resurrection. And he says, as the father has sent me, I have also sent you. All right. So let me take the rest of my time and talk to you about being an incarnational missionary. Now that we've looked at all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus is and what he's done for us and what he's invited us into. And we can celebrate that and experience that. And we can rest in that because that is his work in us and through us. And we can rejoice in that. And he's taught us how to follow him as he's discipling us and leading us as a sheep. And he's the good shepherd. All that good stuff. We have to remember that the one who was sent into the earth is now sending us out as well. And we have to see that. That in all of life, we are called to go. The Bible says about Jesus in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. He came at the right time. Mm -hmm. You ever thought about that? That it was... 
on purpose that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was on purpose he died in Jerusalem. That it was on purpose that he came at the time where, where the Jewish people were subjugated to the Romans. He came at the most oppressive time, some would say, in human history. Where the Roman government was ultra oppressive and so was the Jewish leaders. That he came at the right time. The Bible testifies of this. It was at the fullness of time, at God's appointed time, that the Father sent the Son. Do you know that this is your time to live? And it's intentional. That you were born to the parents you were born to on purpose. That you were assigned your, your race, your gender, your ethnicity at birth on purpose. It's not by accident or happenstance. It was intentional by God. You were assigned and put in the place that you were born on purpose. The Bible says, Paul, while he's declaring this to people who don't know the Lord in Acts 17, that God is the very one who draws the boundary lines of our lives. It's in him that we live, we move, we have our being. And so your very life is on purpose. This time and season that you live in is intentional. And you have been sent out today. Let's jump to Jeremiah 29 and see how we are called to live as what I'm calling incarnational missionaries, right? And an incarnational missionary is someone who looks at the pattern of Jesus' life as our mission, as our, as our assignment for engagement. Mm -hmm. That just as he was, so shall, shall, should we be, right? Just as he was intentional and he saw all of life as, as, as an assignment unto God, so should we. Yeah. And I'm not talking about the type of missionary where you have to leave a certain place and go overseas and serve. I'm talking about the intentionality that comes from following Jesus for real. So let's look at three areas where God calls us in the next couple minutes. There's three areas where God calls us to live intentionally as incarnational missionaries. The first is place. The second is presence. The third is purpose. All right. Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 4 through um, 7 says this. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Praise to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. The message version of John 14 says, of John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Think about that. That the word became flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. He built a house. I want to talk to you a moment about place. God told the Jewish people to build their homes and establish their lives, to plant gardens and eat their produce. He told them to do this where? In Babylon. Yo, but I don't know, I don't know if you've ever, like, Pastor Mike's been talking about it, right? He's been talking about returning, right? And so Babylon was the place that came and wreaked havoc on Jerusalem. There were tons of people who died. They were deported from their homeland. 
And they didn't have vehicles to transport them. You know how they got there? They walked. So hold up, God. You're telling your people to be faithful, to build homes, to plant lives, to plant gardens in a place that's hostile to us? Around the people that's hostile to us? I don't know about y'all, but that don't make sense to me. Because God, it's the, it seems like this is the time we should be guarded the most. Like this is the time where we should, we should try to protect ourselves the most, that we should kind of revert inward the most. And he says, no. No, I want you to be intentional about building lives. Y'all, as I thought about this, and I know that we're celebrating Independence Day today, I thought about the history and legacy of black people in America. And I thought about how people throughout the ages, Christians in particular, have tried to interpret their experience in a land that was foreign to them, in the midst of great hostility. I thought about, even as we celebrate the Declaration of Independence that happened in 1776, I thought about how still many black people in this nation did not taste of what it meant to be independent or free just a little bit, even till 1865 as a whole. I thought about how some people, black Christians, have sought intentionally to understand this experience in light of the gospel and the presence of God. Of how they can be faithful in a place that seems so foreign and hostile to them. And as I thought about this, I wanted to reflect on something that an that a old poet once wrote. A poet that you all probably know by the name of Phyllis Wheatley. She once wrote this poem called, On Being Brought from Africa to America. And I want to read it. It's short. She says, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too. Once our redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember Christian Negroes, black as Cain, many be refined and joined by angelic train." She sought through her experience to understand the providence and sovereignty of God in light of that. Now, I know that we can probably critique that and break that down and then push back on her experience. But I don't know about y'all, but I wasn't around in the 1700s. So I can't really speak in depth to her experience outside of my historical view. But what I can say is she was asking the same question that we're asking now. What does it mean to be faithful in this place? In the midst of our communities, in the midst of our societies, in the midst of our nation and the state of our world, what does it mean to be faithful missionaries in this place? To be followers of Jesus here. Well, not only that, but we also have the call of presence. We have to be faithful in the place God's called us, but we can't just be there and not be present. We have to be present. Jeremiah verse six says, Jeremiah 29, six says this, find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Do not decrease. Build families. Build families. Whenever the Bible tells you to be faithful and multiply or reproduce, it's always two meanings to that, at least. Right. That is biological 
and ideological, mm-hmm. right? Because in the, so um, Malachi tells us that, that, that God, the reason why God puts a man and a woman in a faithful household is so that he may have faithful offspring. So it's not only the reproduction of number, but also the reproduction of those who will faithfully follow him. So, so, so walk alongside me, right? God told them, don't, don't fall into depression, right? To where you stop doing the things that are for your good and your betterment. Remember that I promised to bring you out of this land. And so what I want you to do is to get married. What I want you to do is to raise your children in such a way that they marry faithfully. Right. And I want you to do something else. I want you to faithfully pass down the faith to them so that they understand that I have a history of doing what I said I was going to do and working in your lives. Right. It is a primary importance that we as the church begin to tell the message of God's faithfulness in the black experience in America. We can no longer afford not to share the depth of how God has worked faithfully throughout many generations, many circumstances, and situations in the lives of the minority people in this land. Because if we don't do it, what will happen is that our posterity, those young people, will be swept away by false ideologies and lies of the enemy that try to give them purpose and meaning but will not fulfill them. Let me tell you what helped me when I had questions about my faith. It was me taking an in-depth dive to see that God had worked faithfully in people that looked just like me over generations. It was seeing that I had a history and a culture and a faith that was passed down to me that was delivered once and for all to the saints. And those saints don't have a color distinction. They can be any color because God is faithful to every man who will call upon his name. It is a primary importance that we begin to share that message. That we talk about how God has worked in us, but that we talk about how he's worked faithfully over the centuries. And even further back that we refute and push back against the lie that God just started working among black people when they came to uh, the Western nations. We have to be intentional if we're going to be incarnational missionaries, if we're going to live among people and dwell among them, we have to be willing to speak the truth of the gospel Mm -hmm. to power and the power of the gospel to those who are weak. Mm -hmm. Someone who did this well, who I greatly respect, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he said this, he wasn't afraid to push back and to have a faithful presence and to call other people to that as well. He says this in his letter from a Birmingham jail. I have heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sacrimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty, many, in the midst of a mighty struggle to, to rid our nation, listen to that language, our nation. He sees this as our place. He adopts this as our land. He, he sees that even in the, 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 un, the God's sovereignty, in his providential way, he has brought us here by means that we would have not chosen, just like the children of Israel would have not chosen. But he has said, this is my land. Mm-hmm. 
He says, rid our nation of racial and economic injustice. I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. We have been called to this place. We have been called to bring a faithful presence to this place. And we have been called to live on purpose in this place. Amen. Jeremiah ends this particular letter with, Pursue the well-being of the city. I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on his behalf, and when it thrives, you will thrive. <laughs> Yo, that takes a lot of humility. Like, let's just be real. It's like, I don't, like, I know we read, like, the Beatitudes, and we read the Similitudes, and we read, like, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're like, yeah, that's how Jesus tells us to live. And it's a lot easier to talk about living like that than actually doing it. Because it's a lot easier to punish somebody who's punishing you. It's a lot easier to curse somebody who's cursing you. It's a lot either easy to, easier to attack someone who's attacking you. And that's, that's kind of what we're naturally prone to doing. But what Jesus says is this. The scripture says, pursue the well-being. That word well-being sometimes um, is, is, is translated shalom. Pursue the wholeness. Pursue the thriving. Pursue the well-being of this place. Because, and pray for it. Pursue and pray. There were, from 1619 to 1865 was 246 years. 1619 is the first recorded date of where there were slaves brought to America. During the time of Reconstruction, it was 1865 to 1877, about 12 years. Jim Crow and segregation lasted from 1877 to around 1954, and then we can include the Civil Rights Movement and period, which was from 1954 to 1968, which was 91 years. Post-segregation post was about 40 years, 1969 to 2009, and we've entered into what many people are calling this uh, second civil rights movement, where this holistic movement since 2009, really 2012, depending on what you're looking at um, from the death of whether it would be the election of Barack Obama or the death of Trayvon Martin. But what, what is sure is we are living in a period of time where we have to be intentional. Mm -hmm. And we have to start thinking deeper about how we engage our communities, our society, and the church. So I want to leave you all with this, about the importance of engaging with hope. Jeremiah said, look, this is what the Father wants you to do, but I promise you this, that if you will pursue their well-being, and if you will pray for this nation to thrive, and these people to thrive, that in their thriving, you will find your thriving. I believe, at least to me, and you all can critique me on this, is what God is saying is don't give up on the land I place you in. That's hard for me. That's, that's hard because I like history. And, but what I also see is that the Father is calling us to pursue something that we have yet to see. So we don't really know what it looks like for this place, this community, this nation to thrive because it hasn't ever fulfilled the promises that is made. 
But what if we as the people of God pursued seeing justice and righteousness and truth established in our communities? established in our homes, established on our jobs, right? What if we engage the systems of our society in a way that sought it to be more righteous and more hopeful and for it to thrive? What if we engage the educational system, not blaming someone else for the challenges and problems that we see, but taking responsibility for where we can go as a society? What if we did the same for the criminal justice system? What if, what if we took that responsibility? I know there's a lot of fingers to point, there's a lot of systemic issues that we have as a society, and we cannot overlook those issues, but we have to also take responsibility as the people of God and believe that if we engage in the way that God has called us to, on purpose, for a purpose, he is able to bring about thriving in our societies and communities. So that not only can people know the goodness that our nation has to offer, but they can know the security of being a child of God. Not only are we called to engage society in a way that uplifts it for the betterment of all, but we're also called to serve and proclaim the gospel so that none should perish, but all may find eternal life. They can go together, y'all. Like, it's, it's, not a, it's not a social gospel and a just preach the gospel. There is a gospel. And that gospel causes people to do what Jesus did. To take on flesh and move into the neighborhood. To take on flesh and live among people for their betterment. To take on, to take on flesh and walk with people and, and, and be intentional in a place that God has called you on purpose for a purpose. In hope that what we have yet to realize, we may yet realize. Now, I gave you those dates to show you that we as a people in this nation have gone through stages and stage after stage. And we each had a leg of the race to run. And there have been people who have faithfully sought to do God's will in each generation, proclaiming the gospel and doing the works of the gospel. Engaging society, speaking the truth to those who did not want to hear. Jesus was never afraid to speak the truth to people. Remember what he said to the Pharisees and Sadducees? He called them a bunch of whitewashed tombs. He said, you sit in the seat of Moses, so you should do what they say, but don't follow their lives. That should no longer be true of us. People should be able to look at us and not only do what we say, but follow the example of our lives. In closing, I had to close my Bible, actually close. I keep going. In closing, I want us to think about the place that God has called us to. Because he's all called us to a place. He's all put us in a family. He's all put us in a community. Maybe he's calling us somewhere. Maybe he's calling us back to somewhere. Maybe he's calling us to go somewhere. How is he calling you to be a faithful presence in that place? What has he put on your heart? And then what purposes has he given you? Is it in academia? Are you to be an ideological leader? To write books or to speak about the challenges that we have in our nation or a way forward to contribute to how we think and move forward as a nation, as a people, as Christians, or is it as an artist? Has he gifted you with the ability to express what we're going through or how you feel or to give a music or a, a, a picture, an image, an expression is it an activist? Is he calling you to go out and to help 
mobilize people for a certain cause and purpose. We have all been gifted uniquely with certain talents and abilities to build his kingdom and to build community. I want you to think about what he's calling you to do in this moment. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your presence. Thank you, Lord, that you have ever always been present with us, your people. And God, no matter what our circumstances may have been or might be, God, you have been with us and you have been faithful and you've been present. So, God, I just pray, Father, right now that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, Lord. God, that you would show us, Lord, where our set place is, that we would, one, maybe just appreciate where we are and see that where we are, you've called us to be. And God, that we would probably can find a million things to complain about. But Father God, you've probably also given us a bunch of things to rejoice in. And if nothing else, God, we can rejoice in you. Father God, I thank you, Father God, for your faithful presence that you came and you dwelt among us. You lived among us, Father God. And you don't call us as Christians to withdraw ourselves, but to go. Help us remember that, Father God. Help us not to isolate ourselves or shut ourselves off behind churches and walls, God, and buildings, Lord, but to go. As you called us to do, make disciples, Lord, be intentional in our workplaces, in our jobs, with our families. And God, you have given us a purpose in all of this to see the shalom, the thriving, the well-being of our communities, our families, our nation, our society, God. And we just believe that you're able. And God, we don't have this perfectly figured out. We're trying, we're wrestling, we're searching, we're crying out, we're praying, Father God, asking that you would give clarity and vision and wisdom, Lord, because we are in need of you. So, God, I pray, Lord, that your will would be done in us and through us and that your kingdom would come. And, God, as we get ready to partake of your body and blood, Father God, let us be reminded that it is the blood of Christ that has separated us from this, from the sin of this world, Father God, and united us in a body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your work. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.